you know, Amazon um, buy purchasers um, thought they were going to get a serious like parenting guide, like the updated um, um, Dr. Spock. But that's not what they got. They got you know pictures of me um, tying my son to a chair um, to keep him quiet for a while, like I call the Houdini game. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning, and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. For a terrifyingly smart guy, Dalton Connolly is surprisingly friendly. A professor of sociology at Princeton, he's very much at home in the sociological tribe, having written a best-selling sociology textbook and headed the sociology department at New York University. But he also engages with economists, holding a rare appointment as a research associate with the National Bureau of Economic Research. When I first met Dalton in 2004, he was about to embark on his second PhD in genomics. His excuse was that if he kept on talking about lifelong learning, he needed to put it into practice. His work on the boundary between genetics and sociology has won him a major National Science Foundation award and a prestigious Guggenheim Fellowship. He's also led a pretty interesting life, and we'll be delving into his childhood and parenting philosophy. Dalton, thanks for joining us on the Good Life podcast. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So you've lived your life in New York. What do you like about New York City? Um, one point when a colleague of mine who is at the University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, was trying to recruit me to come there, um, we were walking down the street in New York City, and I said, oh, wait, I'm hungry. Like, let me duck in here. And it was ducking into basically um, a chain of sandwich shop that you could also um, visit in Madison, Wisconsin, or pretty much any strip mall across America. And he said to me, look, all you eat is like Subway sandwiches. What You can do that in Wisconsin. You should really come. And I said, that's not the point. That's not. I'm not here because... I love the New York Philharmonic or the Metropolitan Opera and all the things that people talk about. Oh, uh, you know, we have that too. We have good, you know, a great symphony in Cleveland or whatever. I'm here because I like the energy on the streets, um, yeah. the pace of life, and because um, I feel like I'm at uh, the center of things, even if I actually never leave my apartment. And uh, that's that feeling of I'm actually an introvert and I'm actually kind of uh, really a lazy homebody, but knowing that it's all out there beyond my window makes me feel better about that for some strange reason. So I've never really been able to leave. There's, there's, there's a, a, a almost an unwritten rule that like half, half or more of native New Yorkers have to leave uh, in order to make room for all the, the aspirants that want to come here and start their lives and you know live their New York dreams, but I'm you know one of the ones who didn't, sort of didn't play by that rule and and stayed, and um, you know I also have very I'm very close to my um, my my sister and my mother, so that also makes it hard mm. to consider moving, which is uh, is strange for an academic. I mean, we're a tribe that you know kind of like military or the priesthood. 
joins this uh, profession where you are in a national or international job market and really have to be ready to move wherever. And you, should I cover the birds to shut them No, up? I think it's lovely having okay. the birds, uh, birds talking away. Uh, and we'll come to your, uh, your, your love of pets at, uh, oh, yeah. at, a, at a later juncture, so it'll fit in nicely. Um, but your parents moved here as uh, bohemians in the 1960s, right? Your, uh, your father was a painter, your mother was a writer, and they couldn't afford anywhere outside a, a fairly uh, low-income housing project. That's right. Uh, so they, they might have been able to afford somewhere outside there, but it would have been pretty uh, far out, uh, away from the action. Uh, back then, you could still find a white working class neighborhood, uh, you know, out by JFK Airport, it wasn't called JFK back then, but or, you know, um, some districts of Queens or Staten Island. But the point was, I think they wanted to be in the center of the city where all the action was and, uh, and for their artistic careers. and. To do that, they had to live in a uh, low-income neighborhood, which in that case was uh, predominantly Puerto Rican and African-American. So what was it like to be the only white kid in your, uh, your elementary school? Um, it was definitely a, a, a life lesson uh, or a lesson about American society, I should say, uh, because I don't think um, kids are really aware of gender differences pretty early on, um, but race differences come next or later, and then class differences come even later than that uh, in terms of understanding how the makeup of, of the world. And, uh, and my sister and I got very direct lessons on, on the salience of race and society, um, much more so and much earlier than I think typical kids would have who are living either um, in as minorities in a minority community or as um, whites in a majority white community. Uh, so for example, in my elementary school, I was the only kid who was not given corporal punishment by the teacher, um, which obviously I could observe that my skin was different than everyone else's too and I was the one not getting hit. Um, but it gave me this very acute, a severe uh, case of white liberal guilt, as we call it in the United States, and uh, uh, I started getting facial tics and um, uh, really was kind of a psychological mess for a while there. And my mom went in to see the principal to see what was going on. And she learned that I was the only one not getting corporal punishment. So the, the, uh, the principal explained that he knew that, um, and the teacher knew that white parents spoil their kids, so they, I probably wouldn't she wouldn't have wanted me to be hit. And she was like, well, that's right. Um, uh, can you stop hitting the other kids? And, um, <laughs> and they said, no, the parents requested it. Um, and in a, in a culture of a violent neighborhood, um, very strict discipline makes a lot more rational sense mm. than it does perhaps in, you know, in an upper middle class um, area with very little violent crime. So, um, you know, more authoritarian parenting or more authoritarian, more authoritarian teacher styles, which might seem anathema to a lot of people, I think were very rational in that context. Um, you know, they said that they, uh, but as adult sociologists, uh, I, I think that their account of why they didn't hit me is actually false consciousness in the sense that 
uh, they said it was, well, we know that white parents spoil their kids, but I just think there was an invisible line of race that they thought, you know what, I better not cross this um, and hit a white kid, uh, and uh, um, regardless of whatever rationalization they came up with. Um, so, so, you know, that was me learning that the difference between my skin tone and or my other um, racialized features and the other kids uh, was not a matter of degree like height or weight, uh, but it was a matter of kind. It really was something fundamental in our society. But it wasn't the only lesson, but there was many lessons like that. You called your uh, memoir of this uh, part of your life honky. What's a honky? A honky is a uh, term that was briefly in vogue in the 1970s during the period of my early childhood, um, which is supposed to be a derogatory term for white folks, but you know, but such is the nature of of the relationship between language and social inequality that it really doesn't carry much of a wallop because mm. whites are generally um, a more you know dominant group in this society. So. Um, so it's kind of more of a, now a kind of curiosity. I mean, the younger generation, some of the folks, when I've told them the title, they, they don't even know what that means. They haven't heard of it. it it's an interesting, it's got an interesting uh, etymology that's uncertain. Uh, some people think it came from the South where um, white um, men would go around uh, black neighborhoods looking for uh, paid sex and they would honk their horns, um, and hence the term mm. honky. Um, and others think it came from the um, Black Panther and, and activist H. Rap Brown giving a speech to, um, it, I think it was General Motors, but UAW, uh, the United Auto Workers, during the 60s. And there were a lot of Hungarian uh, auto workers, and he called, they were called hungies, mm. but he mispronounced it, calling it honkies and um that stuck so i don't know what i, I like the, both those stories but I'm, I'm, they're probably both false um so i don't know where the term comes from but um the moment i decided to write the book that th that word as a title came f flashing like neon in my brain i mean as you say the uh race-based criteria uh, jibes aren't aren't as biting i mean you uh, uh, you have one in the book where you uh, where you say uh, uh, your mum's so white she went naked on a wedding day. Right. Uh, it just it doesn't seem to have that uh, that edge to it, and uh, and it uh, is that did that shape you as as somebody that wanted to explore uh, race in a professional sense? The the name or the entire um, the experience. experience. Oh, for sure. I, I didn't know it at the time. Um, I'm never somebody with a. a, a five-year plan or a 10-year plan, um, uh, I kind of, I didn't take any sociology. Um, uh, I took one sociology class as an undergraduate. Uh, I, I barely remember it. I remember watching the, um, the Milgram electric shock experiment. That's about all I can remember from it. Um, it. So I kind of felt like groping in the dark to what I was going to study. But looking back, of course, it seems overdetermined that given mm. uh, my early childhood experience that I would be interested in these kind of issues of social inequality and uh, the organization of society. Um, but I certainly, that I didn't know that till much later. I was studying pre-med. Um, I was, you know, much more interested in natural science than I was in, I didn't even know what social science really was um, until much later.
And you, uh, you wrote your senior thesis, as you say, in your, the introduction to your textbook about uh, the evolution of Disney from uh, uh, Porky Pig to uh, the much more confident Bugs Bunny as a metaphor for America in the 20th century. That must have uh, been, been, been a hint that swirling around you were more than just the uh, anatomy and biology. Right. Um, the, uh, what happened really was uh, that I'd done pre-med, which... You know, in the United States, you you do your bachelor's and then you go apply to medical school, and you have to take this suite of courses: physics, calculus, chemistry, organic chemistry, biology. I, now they actually added sociology to the to the list, and there might be a couple others I'm forgetting. Um, and I'd done them all except for the second semester of organic chemistry, and I was just beaten down, and I realized this is not what I want to do. I don't even like blood, um, and. Uh, and I realized, what am I going to do? I, I don't have a major. This, it wasn't. It's not a major. You you could major in biology, or you could major in psychology, or anything. Um, but those courses that were just kind of the groundwork, really. And I didn't want to continue in in the biomedical field. And I thought, am I going to take you know an extra year to graduate? What's going to happen here? And I looked at my transcript. And I went to a big state school, um, at University of California, and you really couldn't get the courses you wanted. They were all over-enrolled at the time. It was during bu 1980s budget cutbacks. And so I had taken this random suite of courses that were, you know, the prof there was room in the class, and the professor would sign your ad drop form. And I stared at my transcript for a while and thought, what can I major in? And I, there was a now defunct, I think I was like the, I was the nail that, uh, in the final nail in the coffin for this major, but it's called humanities field major, and you could design your own major. So I, I, I took my transcript into the office there and said, "Look at all these courses I've taken: um, philosophy of aesthetics, history of technology, um, film studies. Uh, th what I'm what I'm passionate about is history. Uh, sorry, the the uh, art and technology in the 20th century. That's what I want to do my major in." And Evidently, I was convincing enough that they let me, and I did my senior thesis, as you mentioned, on Warner Brothers cartoons um, as a cultural indicator of, of, of something mm. in America. So, yes, that must have been, um, I was uh, doing, uh, inching towards sociology without even knowing it at that point. So you worked as a journalist then for a while and uh, pretty quickly came, found your way into, uh, into academia. Uh, and your, your exploration of parenting style seems to, st seems to coincide, as I guess happens with, uh, with many researchers, with, uh, with your own kids coming along. Uh, and again, I'm struck by the extent to which, like, like Honky, you, you put a lot of yourself into, in, into your books um, some in the pe pecking order, but obviously a lot in uh, in, in parentology, um, which focuses on um, your your basic philosophy, I guess, which you'd share with your first wife, Natalie Jeremenko, uh, on uh, that parenting is about experimentation. Tell us about experiment, the philosophy of experimentation. Um, well, let me back up and say honestly that that. that book is meant not as a distillation of um, some well-thought-out um, parenting philosophy or, um, uh, or academic research. It's meant more as a humorous book. And, um, and I think uh, the original drafts were way over-the-top humorous and um, 
my editor reined me in. And unfortunately, I think it reined me into a, um, a middle ground where people, a lot of you know, Amazon um, buy purchasers um, thought they were going to get a serious like um, parenting guide, like the updated um, um, Dr. Spock um, you know, book. Um, um, I forgot what the title was. Um, but that's not what they got. They got you know, pictures of me um, tying my son to a chair um, to keep him quiet for a while, like call, I call the Houdini game. Where he has to get out, um, and 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 uh, you know, uh, an account of how my kids end up with such unusual names. Where my daughter has one letter to her name E, and my son has, uh, I think, thirteen names. Um, so, um, yeah. So Yo Zing Haino Augustus Eisner Alexander Wisner Knuckles George Menko Connolly. If I've got it right, you got it. Yeah, and um, uh, and so the sort of framing of experimenting on your kids is kind of um, a, a useful trope, but I, I wouldn't say that that was the, the uh, um, I wasn't, you know, looking for a Skinner box to raise one kid in um, uh, and uh, send the other one out feral, but, um, but it was a good, uh, it was a good lens through which to tell some stories, um, some personal stories that I thought were pretty funny, and also to introduce in a in a um, an easy to swallow way, a lot of w recent research tells us about um, mm. you know the science of child development. Um, so that's that was the conceit of the book. I'm not sure it came off exactly as how as I intended, but um, uh, yeah. So there's you know talking about their names allowed me to to discuss the you know growing literature research literature on. Is there an, an effect of your name on your life outcomes? Uh, discussing uh, my daughter's um, premature birth. Um, she was born almost two months early. Um, to talk about the literature on prenatal mm. um, conditions and outcomes and, and so on. Um, why I want to write about my own life is goes back to that um, uh, point about being an, a, a lazy introvert in my apartment. Um, I'm I'm too shy to go out and do. Um, I, that's why I was, you know, abandoned journalism very quickly. I'm too shy to go out and um, do what you do and talk to <laughs> talk to people <laughs> um, for a living. So that's kind of uh, tough as a sociologist. Um, so you know, I mostly stick to two things, which is um, analyzing data that pe other people have collected for me, um, which is my main uh, kind of day job. And then you know, when I need stories to illustrate things. Um, I don't look too far. I just, you know, um, strip mine my own life um, uh, for 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 material. So uh, that's how I end up writing so much about, you know, family and extended family and people around me. And the decision to give your children the two shortest names in New York City. Uh, what was the social science that underpinned that? Um, well, I mean, there are. So, so, so E was, there was a number of uh, E names that um, we had considered and couldn't decide. So partly it's really just driven by indecision. <laughs> uh, but the idea uh, was that she could choose to what it stood for. So she could, you know, honor my mother, whose name is Ellen, and choose Ellen. She could be Elizabeth. She could be um, anything she wanted. 
but she turned out to um, like Ian, st stuck with it her whole life. And um, in fact, at college, they put a period after the E, thinking it was short for something. And she had to go. She went through this whole um, down this bureaucratic um, wormhole to try to get them to take off the period. And it has created an enormous amount of problems. Sometimes, in fact. Um, they're, they're uh, half Australian, and the Australian authorities did not like that when they were applying for their Australian passports. So it took like a lot of legal do documentation to show that this was actually her legal name. Um, a lot of forms online don't like a first letter. They, they, they shoot it back saying, um, no, no, we need your, you know, some bot says no full name required. Um, so uh, it, it's not, it is created a little bit of um, hassle in her life. Um, but the idea is also that um, I think I think parents name their kids as an expression of their own values, and uh, you know, uh, obviously uh, we valued kind of quirkiness and individuality. Um, we're not alone, of course. There's a whole literature that suggests that uh, there was been an explosion, particularly in the African American community, of unique names, names that appear in the census or in tax records or wherever only one time. And that's, you know, led to incredible um, alterations of spellings for traditional names. Um, uh, and, 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 and I think it's a, it's a really interesting phenomenon that it coincides with the rise of, of black power and civil rights that, um, and has only continued to pay since then of, um, of unique black names. So, um, so what we're doing might sound strange to to white folks, but is not actually that um, mm. um, all that um, non-normative in in in, the, in African American community. So, second kid, um, you know, you can I mean, I guess it would have been interesting to do um, uh, a strange name for the first kid, and then name your second kid Michael or John. But um, that would have been an experiment in and of itself. But we didn't, um, and uh, I thought that challenging ethnic assumptions uh, and and the notion of assimilation. So there's plenty of um, Howard Chins or, you know, um, um, you know, Michael Garcia's in the world um, where Anglo first names are taken um, mm. by immigrants. Um, but why not go the other way? Um, that was the idea. Um, and then, again, indecision, thinking, um, we have to get all these na other names in to honor, um, you know, deceased or, or, or other folks in the family um, led him to having his, the longest name in New York City. And let me run through a couple of, uh, of your other experiments, and you can just say, uh, say quickly what, the, what, what was uh, in your mind there. Bribery to do maths? That's the one I regret. Um, um, you know, and I, and I should have known because... Um, the, there's a long literature that shows that um, you know there's a trade-off between intrinsic, extrinsic, and intrinsic motivation. And you know I was laying the extrinsic motivation in terms of gummy bears, money, whatever it took for them to do extra math. This wasn't to do their regular homework, but to do um, uh, extra academic activities. And uh, I think for my daughter, didn't really make a difference one way or another. She had her interest, and she was very um, uh, didn't it didn't affect her? But my son became you know who's the one <laughs> majoring in math and economics now. 
um, uh, he, 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 it might have been inevitable, but he, he, he developed a very transactional um, relationship to me where, you know, everything was like being in a, um, a Turkish uh, carpet uh, souk where, <laughs> um, you know, if I asked him to do things, you know, and, and so I had to cut that off at a certain point and say, no more, re no more you know, rewards or punishment. Uh, you, you're, you're doing things for yourself now. Um, and uh, we're still in recovery from that. Allowing them to watch anything on television that they wanted to? Well, we didn't have a TV for um, the first half of their childhood, and um, that was great. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, endless hours before a screen is not a good thing. And uh, I don't know how parents do it now because, you know, I see my... Um, niece who's one knows how to like s swipe a um, an iPhone and turn something on it's, it's insane to me like how do you regulate kind of consumption so it wasn't about um, it, it wasn't about um, saying okay you can just do whatever you want um, but it was about that my concern was amount of screen time not content so um, whether there's uh, stuff with um, uh, adult content was not my concern. I mean, we took them to very sophisticated movies, and sometimes at the, um, you know, getting tut tuts like a, a, um, a program from our from the people in the in the audience. Um, I remember once we took them to um, Waltzing with Bashir about um, Bashir Assad and the war in um, in uh, it was a cartoon actually, but um, it was uh, about the Israeli. Lebanese conflict. It was very violent, and like people were super upset that our kids were there. But um, we explained, you know. But um, I felt like I, you know, I guess I think that if anything, modern society is so age stratified in terms of um, what we consume, um, and, and the internet might be changing that. But uh, it, it had been, you know, where you know most people go through their lives. Entire childhood in, in in rich Western democracies, not seeing any death or not seeing any violence, and um, um, so I don't I don't think that's the you know necessarily a, the natural state or the better state. Mm. Um, so I, I think that as long as we talked about content, um, anything was possible, anything was viewable on the table. Uh, proliferation of pits. Oh, um, so there is a hypothesis called the hygiene hypothesis that suggests a lot of the, um, the high prevalence of, of autoimmune and, and, and other modern diseases uh, is actually due to, um, to um, over-cleanliness in, in Western societies and that we're not exposed enough to um, microbes that um, are good for our microbiome and, and actually um, train our our immune system uh, on the right targets and not on ourselves. Um, and so, um, again, that's a, that's a slim read to, um, to justify uh, the fact that we did have a explosion of pets. My, my daughter became a, um, a vegetarian at a very young age and is, is passionate about animal rights. She's vegan now. Um, and, um, and wanted to live um, symbiotically with with many animals. So we've had 
Australian sugar gliders, we've had um, lizards, we've had um, dogs and cats, of course, uh, fish, birds that both have been um, either cage or flying freely around the house, depending on whether there's cats or not. Um, um, and, uh, you know, uh, she briefly, one summer, had a pet monkey. Um, uh, I know I'm, uh, turtles, uh, um, frogs, rabbit, we've, I mean, mostly these are stray things that um, kids would just grab up and bring back home. So, and, you know, if you're living in a, in a, in a farm um, uh, in New South Wales or in Pennsylvania, it doesn't really, that's fine. But we're living in an apartment in New York City, so that was really um, made it pretty, pretty strange, you know, when um, uh, their friends would come over and see this virtual zoo here. But an underlying all of these experiments, as I understand it, is the notion that there is not an ideal way of parenting, right. that we can learn from the Finns or the French, but that parenting should be an experiment, it's difficult, it needs to be tailored to the child, so parents should be trying lots of things and discarding lots of ideas as they, as they go, is that...? Yes, uh, one, one, asp one, one um, strand of my, you know, my, my day job research is uh, looking at the family as a more complicated socialization unit. Um, you know, we, the, the model is that parents socialize kids. Yes, there are outside influences. Parents try to manage those influences, but generally it's a one-way street, and it's kind of parents trying to impose their values and their aspirations on each kid um, subject to external constraints. And really, um, I think it's much more complicated. Kids socialize parents just as much, maybe not just as much, but certainly um, a non-trivial degree just as parents socialize kids. So for example, some research I do uh, uses the sex of the firstborn child as a random experiment to see how parents change. And um, there's a lot of debate uh, on whether that's what, what those effects are, mm. um, but, but um, current research uses uh, the kids' uh, genetic propensities as a um, conditional on the parent, parents' um, genes. What the, each kid gets is a random draw of the, car, you know, of the, of the two decks from the parents. Right. So the random draw could be that um, you know, both parents have a kind of average tendency towards ADHD, let's say. Um, um, the kids can be calmer or they could be uh, more hyperactive and attention deficit than, than would be expected mm -hmm. by the mean of the parents. Uh, and you can treat that as like one of these natural experiments that uh, I know that you and I both love um, to, uh, to, to utilize to study social phenomena. So that's what we're doing now is we're looking at the, the um, what is the effect when you, you know, two average, um, cognitively average parents genetically get the draw where they have this brilliant kid, you know, um, and how does that affect their behavior and their values right. and so forth. Right. Um, so let me come to genetics in a moment. I just wanted to just look at one last aspect of parenting, which I think was something all, all of us struggle with as parents, that balance between encouraging children to go out and experiment and explore the world and, and to be safe. Uh, New York was a much more dangerous city when you were growing up. You talk in honky about your friend Jerome being shot. 
But you also talk in parentology about uh, uh, Yo having his iPad stolen, stolen when he was mugged at your apartment door. How did you think about that balance between looking after your kids and, and not wrapping them in cotton wool? I think is very much conditioned by uh, the environment that you're raising them in. So uh, often people ask me in, in academia, particularly when I was at NYU and trying to recruit potential faculty members, well, what is, what is it like to raise kids in New York City? They couldn't mm. imagine it. And, and I said, look, I really can't comment very well because I, I grew up here and I'm raising my kids here. So I don't have a counterfactual, but just from my quote-unquote ethnographic observation and my very brief time living um, up at Yale and New Haven, uh, what I think is it's some, it's some stages of life of the kids, it's easier, and some stages of life it's harder. So from zero to you know, school age maybe, I think it's actually easier in the city because you're not, I don't have a car. Like um, you put a kid in a stroller, you take him to a public park where it's, you're not socially isolated. You're sitting mm. with other parents on the bench while the kids are playing in the sandbox. Um, you can go right, it's a few blocks away. If you, someone needs to use the bathroom or you get hungry or cranky, your kid or you, you can go home um, pretty easily. You're, I remember dealing with put the kid in the car seat, drive here, bring the kid out of the car seat. Uh, not not having this, these public spaces in most of suburbia in America where um, you can just show up and there'll be other adults to socialize with uh, on a park bench while your kids play, that you'd have to arrange a play date in someone's house or backyard. So I just felt like um, getting around with very little kids was pretty easy. I think middle childhood, where the kids in the, in the, in the idealized suburbs can get on their bikes themselves, they can walk home from school themselves, uh, I think that's probably easier there. Mm. But then I would say, when you get to the age of 16 or so, I don't know, depending on what the driving age is, I couldn't imagine being a parent uh, where your kids are going out on a Friday night and you're worried that either they or um, their, their friend is going to get behind the wheel and give them a ride mm. when they're um, drunk. And, you know, there's so many, I mean, where my mom's from in Pennsylvania, uh, there's so many families that lost kids to, um, to, to driving accidents. And, um, and here, I don't have to worry about that. Um, you know, the kids will take the subway home late at night or they'll take um, a taxi or, you know, now there's, of course, rideshare services. So um, I felt like it was much more safe here. And back when I was growing up, that might have been true because the, the risk of crime, violent crime, might have canceled out the risk of, of driving accidents. Um, but certainly for their generation, you know, there's been the great crime decline in, in New York and in most cities in the United States and just feels so much incredibly safer here. I, I remember um, uh, when I first went to a European city, something was felt so weird and I realized um, this is you know in the late 80s um, wait a second I'm not afraid all the time walking around the streets at night that's what it is and and then in American cities it was much more gradual but I realized wait a second 
I don't feel afraid anymore like I did when I was, and it could be just my age, but I think it's also just the incredible crime drop we've had. Yes. And I know that because um, um, uh, my uh, wife and I commute back and forth between Baltimore and New York now, which where she works, and, and Baltimore has not experienced the crime drop. It's Baltimore and Newark, I think, are the two major cities that have not mm. um, had this crime drop from the peak at the early 90s. And um, when I'm in Baltimore at night in certain neighbors, I feel that childhood fear rush back in. That's so I think it is a, so I think, I think raising your kids in the city is a, um, a double-edged sword in some ways, but um, m much different than the perception of, um, of, of it as a kind of dangerous, violent place that I think a lot of people have. So your latest wave of research has uh, moved into the field of genetics, uh, a uh, challenging field for sociologists given the history of uh, the eugenics movement, uh, the very controversial book by Hernstein and Murray, The Bell Curve, which suggested that a combination of genetic determinism and meritocracy meant things were the way they were, they were, way they were because of uh, uh, natural, natural selection. Uh, you've called it a, uh, the nightmare of progressive social scientists. So what made you want to get into genetics for all that as a sociologist? Uh, well, I mean, ultimately I'm a scientist and I follow where the data take me. And uh, the bread and butter approach in sociology when I was in graduate school would be to uh, compare, let's say, poor kids and non-poor kids and try to match them on maybe the parents' education level, their race, how many, how, the family structure, whether it's a single family household, how many kids are in the house, uh, maybe, you know, five to eight other factors and then see, well, when we, when we match them on those other factors, do kids uh, from poor families do better than kids from rich families or vice versa. And of course, we would find that kids from rich families did better. Um, but uh, along the time, I, around the time I was finishing my dissertation uh, and um, uh, trying to turn it into a book, uh, there were a, a book came out from the program you studied in um, by Susan Mayer um, from advised by your same graduate advisor, Sandy Jenks, that showed that that's not a good approach to studying the causal impact of income. And of course, you want, if you're interested in policy, you want to be interested, in, you want to know what the, the true causal impact is, not that two things are just correlated and vary together. Um, and she showed that, for example, uh, income in predicting test scores at age 16, the parents' income from 17 to 21 predicted basically just as well as the income from age 13 to 16. And unless you're into quantum tunneling or some time, you know, wormholes and through time, the income after the test is not causally affecting um, the test scores. So it suggests that actually it's just something about the families that have high income that is generating better test scores or better out health outcomes or better whatever, um, and not the income per se. Um, and that was a huge challenge um, to just showing correlations and sent me on this 20-year uh, um, journey into econometrics and, and the, the natural experiment framework that you're so familiar with, um, trying to find these natural randomizations of 
social factors that we can confidently say are really the cause and not just um, a uh, caused by some third factor that is, is causing both um, the outcome and the, and the treatment. Uh, but the problem with that is that um, you, you have to kind of be like the drunk looking for their keys under the lamppost because that's where the light is. You can't choose the questions you're interested in. And for a lot of questions, especially things I'm interested in about transmission of, of status from parents to child, they're not really good natural experiments. I should say that the, the impact of parental income on, on kids, um, the, causal, the true causal impact, has been resuscitated a bit since that, that book came out in 1997. Um, this is know, what money can't buy. Yeah, yeah. Susan Mayer. And um, there's been, there's been, sorry, pet food, um, uh, uh, automatic pet feeder. There's been um, work that's looked at uh, lottery winnings, looked at um, 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 windfalls to Native Americans, uh, other, other sort of random uh, rises in income and has shown that there actually is a bigger effect probably than maybe um, Susan Mayers gave, gave, gave income credit for. However, that said, um, one of the big, um, you know, the lurking variable that um, is probably the thing that we're concerned with the most is biasing all of the, all of social science really, is genetic endowment. Parents pass on their genes to their kids, they pass on their social and cultural environments as well. How do we separate those out? Um, and in fact, a long tradition of behavior genetics research based on twins and adoptees and so forth had shown that uh, from almost anything social scientists care about, um, with the possible exception of years of schooling, um, genetic effects are pretty big, substantial. They vary depending on the outcome, but and um, unique environmental effects, things that um, affect you and your brother, let's say, differently. Um, you had a great teacher in eighth grade and he didn't, or you ended up breaking your leg right before um, graduation and he didn't, or um, whatever. Any, any number of things have a big effect on, 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 on life outcomes. And the common family experiences have almost a nil effect. Um, and so sociologists, in a sense, were studying the wrong thing. Um, they're studying the common family environment rather than the unique things that each kid experiences, and they're not studying genetics. Um, and now, with the sort of um, genomics revolution and um, the cost of genotyping falling faster than Moore's law in microcomputing, um, we can add genetic data, and we have added genetic data to all sorts of traditional social science studies and, of course, to big medical studies. So we're able to now actually look in the black box, not just look how similar twins are or adoptees are, um, but ac actually measure what genes are, are having an effect on social outcomes. And importantly, then factor that out when we want to understand um, the effect of the social, the pure social effects. Uh, and also look at how um, genes and the environment interplay. I mean, that's, I think, the holy grail for most of us social scientists who went into this, um, you know, this sidetrack on genetics, is that it's great to have an adage that says, if you're from the ghetto and you have the genotype for aggression, you end up in prison. But if you're from to the manor born, um, 
and you have a genotype for aggression, you end up as you know CEO of Bain Capital, like Mitt Romney. Um, uh, but you know that's a great adage. It makes a lot of intuitive sense that how your genes play out depend on your environment. But um, actually, putting that into a practice as a mm. as a, a research program is not so simple. Because you're back to the problem of you need random variation in the environment that's not correlated with genes, and you need random variation in genes that's not correlated with the environment. Um, so you actually made the problem harder than it was for traditional social science. But I think we're making some progress on that ground. And I just think we're, we're biological creatures. We can't, if we want to explain behavior and social life, um, we're really just sticking our head in, our, in the sand um, uh, to ignore um, how we're shaped biologically. Um, rather, I think it's much more productive um, to try to integrate the social environment and our, uh, our biological predispositions. Otherwise, also in this era where of cheap genotyping, where everyone's setting off their spit to get find out, quote unquote, who they are, um, uh, we risk uh, irrelevance or margin being marginalized if we don't actually take seriously the notion that um, there are um, common genetic differences in the population that explain um, not just height and eye color, but also um, behavioral traits. And we're surprisingly similar, as you uh, as you point out in, uh, in your new book, The Genome Factor. Uh, I think you say that the typical American marriage uh, sees two people come together who are as genetically similar as second cousins. Uh, so it does feel as though you're dealing with a lot of small, subtle differences. And also, as you point out, uh, this model of one gene, one disease seems to have been cast aside in favour of the notion that lots of different genes are interacting. Can you say a bit more about the challenges of unpacking that as a researcher? Uh, yeah. Uh, we went into uh, what I'll call social genetics um, with, with what was good scientific practice. We took single genes that had been dis uh, demonstrated in animal models to have important outcomes on phenotypes. So, for example, there is a mouse model of anxiety. There's a mouse model of depression. Um, uh, there's a mouse model of cognitive ability, even. There's a mouse model of grit. Um, and, uh, and then they would show, because they can manipulate in mice, obviously, completely control the environment and, in fact, control the genetics of the mouse, that these particular genes, for example, the serotonin transporter gene, had important effects on mouse depression. Um, so we would look in humans and, and observe, obviously we wouldn't do experiments, but we could look and say, do people who have the same version of that gene that the, the depressed mice have um, in, in humans ha also suffer from higher rates of depression? And initially it seemed like we, that was a pretty good strategy and a mapping, but it turned out that um, those turn, those initial effects, including papers I wrote, uh, were all false positives. Because when we got much bigger data sets with the, with the declining price of genotyping uh, and used much more rigorous methods, we found out that um, the idea that a few genes control anything, even height, is controlled by probably a thousand different genes. Um, uh, and certainly, behavior and social outcomes are, 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 are 
one of the lessons of the last 10 years has been polygenicity, that um, a, lo a lot of thousands of small little effects across the genome add up to explain a lot of the variation of the population. But any individual um, mm. marker or gene has a almost trivial effect. So it's going to be a long time before um, CRISPR-Cas9, the, the gene editing quote-unquote software that's gotten a lot of attention in the, in the media um, is going to, you know, go in there and fix embryos to make them, you know, to raise their IQ by 10 points or um, make them three inches taller. Um, that's going to has a lot of promise for single gene diseases like Huntington's, for example, or sickle cell. Right. But, but for most modern disease, diabetes, um, schizophrenia, depression, um, obesity, they're controlled by so many markers across the genome that we're much more likely to have some sort of genetic selection um, in the mating process or in the um, in the in IVF process than bef long before we're going to have edit gene edited humans. I mm. think. So I want to jump to how you work. You're one of the most productive social scientists in the world. What is it that you're doing that? Uh, others can learn from? Do you have a word target? Do you wake up early? Is there something special about how you put together your teams? What do you think of as the secret source that shaped that success? Well, I would not definitely not characterize myself as one of the most productive social scientists in the world, but thank you. Um, uh, the, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I often read about people who are up at five in the morning and they write for two hours before they, you know, even greet their kids or then they they're like you they're training for six marathons a year or whatever um and i feel incredibly lazy um i am a much more just like my parenting approach i'm much more kind of adhd and scattered um i have certain things that i try to ritually do like read the new york review of books um um get a i subscribe to various things that uh, I feel like keep the breath of my knowledge fresh um, uh, because I think, you know, especially in the natural experiments framework, um, but also just more generally in doing um, intellectual production, uh, you never know where ideas come from. And a, a lot of it is being an import-export dealer, realizing that, oh, there's this really interesting um, um, historical phenomenon that I read about in a review or in a book, a history book, and we could actually use that to, as a natural experiment to understand something today. Um, if I'm not mistaken, the, um, the famous piece uh, by Levitt and Donahue on the effect of abortion, uh, uh, legalized abortion on crime rates 20 years later in the United States was inspired by um, learning about um, the Romanian crime spree that occurred after Ceausescu, the, dictator, the communist dictator, outlawed abortion. And 20 years later, you had all these unwanted children committing crime. So it was them not just being buried into um, the economics literature, but having a broad um, um, intellectual curiosity that led them to do you know, cutting-edge work. So I, I try to institutionalize that by reading very widely. But I don't have any specific um, you know, work patterns, I, you know, I, 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 I try, I'm trying to not look at my um, 
phone or a screen late at night anymore because definitely interrupts sleep. But I do tend to, um, um, I try to keep the, the one rule I have to try to keep the number of messages in my inbox at, at a dozen or fewer. Um, it starts to stress me out when I have too many emails to respond mm. to. I, I'm sure that you feel this way, um, but I think a lot of professors as well, uh, it seems like sometimes our primary job is answering emails. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I don't have a, I don't have any, I'm sorry, I don't have any secret formula to share. I wish I did. No, it's interesting all the same. A couple of final questions. Um, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Oh, gosh. Uh, um, to be more patient, to allow things to develop, uh, to take more math, to not have quit computers um, in the early 80s when I was interested in them, and then I, and then I got bored of them. Um, yeah, I think that would uh, invest in Apple. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I think I would have to say the whole genetics thing. I, I used to be much more um, of a uh, nurturist or of you know bl blank slate thinker, um, but now I'm realizing even the very nature-nurture dichotomy doesn't even make sense in the sense that some very recent and to me super interesting research shows that um, not only so your parents pass on their genes. Um, but even the genes they don't pass on, the 50% the, the that you didn't get through the, the, the shuffle deck, uh, have important influences on you. Uh, uh, they are calling genetic nurturance in this paper that came out in Science a couple months ago. Uh, in our own work, we showed that the uh, met, what we call the metagenomic environment of your peers in high school uh, has important uh, impact on your behavior. Um, so that the point being that uh, a lot of what we call environment is really genetics one step removed, that, that the, the metagenome around you is, is, a, is one of the most critical parts of your environment. Um, at the same time, the, that paper in Science I mentioned showed that um, what we think of as genetic effects are probably being overestimated, uh, genetic effects meaning like your genome affecting you um, is actually being overestimated because it's correlated with the parents' genomes that, that they passed and also didn't pass on to you, and that's part of the effect. So the whole environment, genes, nature-nurture dichotomy is being scrambled up in an exciting way, I think, and um, I definitely would not have, that wouldn't have been my prior. You talk, I think, about uh, not nature versus nurture, but nature via nurture, which strikes me as a crisp way of thinking about it. Yeah, there's a... Um, misconception that if something's a genetic effect in our models that that means it's just completely inside you uh, you know it's about your neurons and your, your blood um, you know oxygen level or whatever it is that is kind of impervious to the outer world it turns out I think a lot of the effects of your genes work through uh, the kind of environment that you evoke so um, if you have two kids who have different levels of verbal genetic predisposition, the kid with the more kind of verbal potential verbal talent will be the one that's bugging their parents to read them, no, just one more book before bed. Um, and if you 
were a, um, you know, if you raised them in a Skinner box or if you just were an authoritarian parent and said, no, I'm not reading books before bed or only one book, uh, you would repress that genetic influence, but assuming that parents um, react to their kids' um, needs and, and wants, um, and so does the wider world through schooling and et cetera, um, through those environmental channels, genes get expressed. So you wouldn't force your kid like me with zero musical talent to do the requisite 10,000 hours that you know Malcolm Gladwell has made famous of to become proficient in a, in a talent, um, uh, because that would just be pure torture on everyone listening and myself. Um, but um, it's, a ten, it's not just the 10,000 hours, it's the, um, it's the selection of who is willing and wants to do the 10,000 hours of musical practice or athletic practice or math drills or whatever it is. So we're constantly shaping our environment through these sort of biological drives and mechanisms that um, uh, make us select into and, 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 sh and fashion our, the environment around us. But without that environment, those effects wouldn't manifest. What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Uh, run, uh, you know, a quarter of the distance you run. Uh, uh, I think that I, I hate it. I, I don't know if you like running, but I don't, I, I don't know why, I can't imagine why. Most of the why time I like it, you yeah. See, well, I'm so jealous of that. I hate it, but I make myself do it. And of course, just like writing, uh, I feel, I hate writing too, but I love having written and I love having run. Um, so uh, that's my main sort of, uh, um, that and crosswords, that, which I do like doing, um, are my main um, pastimes that keep me sane. When are you most happy? In the morning. First thing when you wake yeah, up? Yeah, I'm a morning person. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Um, well, if I do, I'm not going to tell you. So. <laughs> uh, and finally, Dalton, what person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I would say, uh, going back to the idea of kids socializing their parents, my daughter, um, I... You know, the fortitude that she's had to be um, uh, a vegetarian since a um, very young age, to be, she's kind of a moral voice. Um, she's almost like a, like a, you know, a saint or an angel that's been um, beamed down to us. Um, uh, she's like a, um, we, I, I nickname her um, the Mormon because she doesn't, she's never drunk alcohol, she doesn't drink caffeine, she doesn't smoke. She's very, um, and it, she's not, but she's also, you know, the kid of, um, of um, kind of crazy parents. So she's not like, just doesn't live a rigid life. She's very accepting of difference, um, yet she's very personally um, lives a pretty righteous life. So I, I, I'd have to say she inspires me to try to be a better person myself. So kids do affect their parents. And in nearly 60 of these podcasts, asking the same question to all of my guests, you're the first person ever to nominate a child as having, as having influenced them. So thank you for that. Uh, and thank you for the uh, many wise insights on the, on the podcast conversation today. Thank you for having me. It was quite fun. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts. 
formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.